turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them The Marketing Millennials Podcast is back in your ears again. I am lucky to be joined by a special guest today, the founder of Refine Labs, a consultancy which is on a mission to help companies optimize their revenue model. He is also one of my top followers on LinkedIn. He puts out content that everybody is thinking but nobody wants to say. A big welcome to my friend, Chris Walker. What's up, Chris? What's up, Daniel? Really happy to be here, man. That was quite the intro. I really do appreciate the note about saying the things that everyone's thinking, but no one will say. Yeah, it just really resonates. And I remember being an employee at companies and and thinking all of the same things and not being able to say them. And I think that I just am in a position where I'm lucky that I can, that now I'm free to talk about the things that everyone else is thinking about. Uh, That's an awesome feeling. I feel like that's a lot of problems people have with like personal branding in general. It's like, they want to talk about like their experience job hopping or their experience here, but they know that if they talk about it, their comp- it could fall back on them and their company. So yeah. you're in a unique position to be able to speak the truth. It comes down to there's a lot of politics inside a company. So people will read between the lines and misinterpret what people are saying. The second thing is that a lot of companies want to suppress their employees so that they don't leave. Yep. If our employee gets 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, they become they have leverage over us versus the other way around. So let's not have them post on LinkedIn. It's kind of the feeling. It's a backwards way of looking things. But I just want to start off because I, I've heard this before, but I want to know like your journey. How did you get into marketing? And then we can get into like how did it led you to starting your own company? Cool. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll roll through this as quickly as I can. So I studied biomedical and electrical computer engineering in college. I thought I was going to design medical devices. I think it's an interesting, interesting point about my experience because a part of marketing is thinking about it as if it's a system, as if it's you have inputs, you're doing processing, you get outputs. There's a very linear way of thinking about it. There's also a huge creative side that I think people don't respect and psychological side that I've been able to mesh together over the past five or 10 years of my career. So I started there worked in engineering and then quickly into product management upstream. So so specking products, going out and talking to customers and figuring out what was available in the market, how other products were positioned, what things were working, what features they wanted, and then bringing that back to engineering and putting together requirements documents about what to build and then running beta tests and then launching products. And then the last five years of my career have been complete downstream demand inside of venture funded companies. And so inside of that, the, the most notable one was a company called Vapotherm. I started there. It's about a $25 million ARR business that raised a lot of money and was 100% field sales outbound. And over the course of two years, I went from like begging for a $500 test to run on Facebook ads to managing a multi-million dollar budget and a five-person team inside of that company that was generating millions of dollars of net new ARR when the company eventually IPO'd and has been quite successful. And so I learned a lot of things during that journey. I think a lot of things that um, most marketers don't have the luxury, that breaks down to two for me. The first one is that the executives in that company didn't know how to measure what I was doing. 
And so it was up to me to figure out how to measure it and what made most sense. And then when I was going back to the CEO to try and figure out how to get more budget, I had to figure out what is the way that I was going to measure this in order to get more budget. And then it easily came down to sales cycle length, win rate, pipeline, velocity, you know, overall qualified pipeline. Those were the metrics that mattered to them. And so measurement became a huge one. And then when you align on measure on business metrics like pipeline and revenue, then when you look at what you're doing, a lot of the things that marketers do today are focused on MQLs, not pipeline and revenue. And so they sit there and spin their wheels at the top of the funnel and very few actually get down to sales. And I think it creates a lot of downstream sales and marketing misalignment because of how marketing is executed. Why do you think most companies are just looking at this top of the funnel picture? Like, why aren't they caring about like revenue? Because revenue, I mean, marketing back in the day used to be a sales and marketing function. Someone used to be head of marketing and sales, like sales yep. was like the, the terminal marketing, but somewhere down the line it split up. And now like there's marketers who only care about what you said, MQLs. Why do you think that is? So my feeling on this is that the first one is that people do not have a respect for how much things have changed over the past 20 years. Most people that are running businesses right now have been in their career for more than, more than two decades. And so when they're running those businesses, they're still looking at it as it's, as it's 2001. And the truth is that a ton of things have changed about how buyers buy and how buyers discover and research and different things like that. But they're still running the model as if nothing has changed. And the problem is that it still works just enough. It's not that it doesn't work. It works just enough for them not to want to change. The second thing is that it kind of goes in the same vein is that they're just going to run the serious decisions demand waterfall and they don't really realize what's happening, but they're just spinning their wheels. A lot of companies can't break away from that. Eloqua Marketo, 2005, marketing automation, generate leads, nurture them, hit an MQL score, pass them to an SDR. None of them get to opportunities. Like that's the flow. Like that's what, that's what a lot of companies are doing, especially as they get larger. The thing is that as you get larger, you can get away with it because you have enough inbound demand going on in the market that you don't even notice. So you're closing customers because your customers are telling other people and different people are having success with the product. So you feel like your marketing's working. And if you actually split the bucket into two pieces, you would notice that the things that you're actually spending money and time on are doing nothing. And the things that you're passively waiting for people to come are the ones that are actually closing to revenue. I want to dig into the, the subject, how you said, like the buyers are different now. Like, could you explain that to people? What, like how the buyers are different now? Like, what are they doing differently than they did 20 years ago? So first off, let's just let's just look at what, what it was like in 1999 as a B2B buyer. I wasn't one of them, but we can speculate and talk about it, right? If you're a B2B buyer in 1999, it's impossible to figure out what, what pricing is. It's impossible to figure out where the competitors are. It's impossible to check and get references from other people because it's more challenging to communicate, especially globally outside of your local town. And so where did you discover products? at a trade show industry conference booth where you showed up and you would carefully peruse the floor to see what new innovations were there because there was no internet. Or you would hope that a sales rep would, would call or show up at your office. That was in 1999. And you can just the way that I painted that picture can explain how different it is now, which is that buyers are in control. All of the information that was once guarded by a sales rep is no longer guarded. They can get it all. And so companies still, through a sales-led motion, try and protect that information in hopes of getting more people into the funnel when buyers are actually doing all those things on their own. I can ask 20 people 
what the, what their experience was with the product. I can recommend the best. I can recommend a product. I can ask what is the best product in this category. I can go and get pricing. I can look at all of the websites with none of no one really knowing what I'm doing. I just feel like th- there's a level of control that buyers have over their own process that they didn't once have. It had to go through a sales rep because the sales rep held the information. Information is now abundant. It's everywhere, and that is the difference. What's funny right now is I, I want to talk about this buyer centric side of it, but I feel like still companies are doing that guarding, putting that guard up to 100%. all that information of like, like you, I seen a post that you posted recently is like they hide pricing, they hide information, like thinking that people are just going to want to come content to get leads, like yeah. hot, basically an exchange of information in order to get someone's contact information so that you can inevitably try and sell them to them shortly after, as opposed to just giving it to them and letting them choose Hiding pricing is a big one. It's just like we need to de- we need our reps to be able to demonstrate value with. It's just an excuse to have more people go into your funnel the way that you want, as opposed to adapting your sales process based on how buyers buy. I want to go into the subject between being like buyer centric versus seller centric. So I think it's a big thing problem that a lot of companies are having, and I think a lot of things people should be shifting to this buyer centric approach, but they they totally aren't. They put all these friction points in the sales cycle that just think e-commerce, like buyers are now used to like buying so quickly. Uh-huh. And they go to the B2B cycle and it's like, I have to go talk to an SDR and then I have to go talk to an SDR. I have to go talk to a sales rep and then I have to go on three demo calls uh-huh. before I can even buy something. So uh-huh. how, do, how does one company become more biocentric and take down those friction points? So, in the most simplest fashion about how to look at this is whether you're doing something because it's in your own best interest versus in your buyer's best interest. And most companies build their process designed to how it makes it as easy for them, not as easy for the buyer. And so they love that the SDR that makes half as much money as the AE takes the first call. They love that because it's cheaper, not because it's better for the buyer. And you, and ironically, you lose a lot of buyers that would have bought your product by doing it that way. That's one. I'm I'm terribly upset with the idea that that you'd go onto that call with an SDR and they cannot show you or they can't bring any value. They pass you off to somebody else. They ask you questions that you've already answered and they can't show you the product when you ask for a demo. And so the like that is the most obvious one. That is one that really breaks down for me, but in, in general, I think it's it's the lack of acknowledgement of how how buyers want to buy. Right. Like, and I use this example on another podcast. I think it's super fascinating. And you, and you called it out as well is that B2B marketing, if you pay attention, is super easy because all you have to do is just look at what's already happened in B2C and then replicate it. It's already happened a decade ago, it's happening right now. And so that's, that's the approach that I take in, in B2B marketing. And it's served me very well over the past like six to 10 years. I want to talk about a subject that we talked about before hopping on this podcast is basically winning before they people get to Google. Cause I know this mm-hmm. is one of something you're shouting at the rooftops right now. Mm-hmm. What companies do is because of how they set up their attribution models and their marketing, it pushes their marketing team to focus on the highest intent, easiest to measure activities. What's the most high intent, easy to measure activity is someone that passes through Google 
in branded search or high intense search and comes through. The challenge is that if you're not doing other things at the top, only a certain amount of people are going to go through that. And if you have a competitive landscape, you're going to lose a lot of those deals because your vendors see in a sea of 20 vendors versus being the brand that people want. What I've been doing for the past five years is winning way, trying to win way before someone gets to Google. And don't get me wrong, if we're going to be in you know, non-branded intent-based search and try and win there as well, but I'm trying to win way before that. And that is a process that takes a long time and continues to build. I talk about momentum a lot. We can get into the tactics, but really getting out and being somebody that is known or a company and a brand that is known inside of your market is hard. And it also requires doing things that are counterintuitive. Could you break down the channels that you're doing this on that? Like what channels are you you, utilizing to win before Google? Yeah. So it ultimately depends on the buyer. But broad stroke general, broad targeted Facebook ads, narrow targeted LinkedIn ads. People think that LinkedIn and Facebook are competitive. We use them in very different ways for very different purposes. They are not a one or the other type of thing. The answer is both. You know, we post stuff on YouTube, but we don't expect to get a huge traction on YouTube just because the platform is saturated, but we already create the content. So it goes on YouTube. I think the, the other two high upside ones are podcast and LinkedIn. LinkedIn organic, that is. I think those are the, the four. And then when we can get back to it, I think that field marketing events is a huge opportunity if companies change the way that they measure it and change what they do. I want to talk about the subject of measuring because I know a lot of people don't do some of these actions that you're saying mm-hmm. is because of the measuring. Like yep. they say, I can, I can do a podcast because I can exactly measure that. Someone, a listener There's no lead in Salesforce. Exactly. Which is fascinating. How does one go and say to their CMO right now and say, like, I want to start a podcast, but I really have no way to right now to measure that it's going to be a lead in Salesforce and be direct tied to revenue? Yeah. The advice I give to marketers on this one is if your core demand engine isn't working, you shouldn't be building a podcast. If you can't, if you can't get people to your website and have them convert on a demo and then move them into SQO at a rate that your organization needs, then you shouldn't be building a podcast. You should figure that out first. You should figure out high intent search, paid search. You should figure out other channels first. And then once you have a flow of opportunities coming through that are converting to revenue at an acceptable customer acquisition cost, then you go and move to organic channels. I just think it's smart because if you don't have that core piece of the engine running, you're going to work on organic. It's going to take too long and the company's going to deem it's a failure. So that's the order. But I, I truly believe that the why marketers don't do this is because they can't measure it, right? They can't measure the podcast. They can't, they can't do Facebook ads the way that I do Facebook ads because they don't have any direct attribution leads to show for it. Same goes for LinkedIn. For some reason, every single thing that a marketer does must be measured on leads and cost per lead, which I think is ultra fascinating. And so the way that I think about it is I think about it based on my objective. Is my objective to convert someone or is my objective to educate someone? And when my objective is to educate someone, I measure it based on whether or not that person is more educated than they were before and whether that was worth the price that I paid for it. And when I'm trying to convert someone, I'm going to measure it on the conversion metrics. And the core is just really splitting that up because of companies 
measure on MQLs mainly would be the leading metric that marketing scored on. I watch this all the time. I see reports that get sent through from some of the companies that we work with in Slack. That's literally like a party hat emoji that they hit their 30,000 MQL number for the year, but they only had 300 SQLs. And I'm like, okay, so 1% of your MQLs convert to SQL. <laughs> and we're celebrating with a party hat emoji? Come on. And so I just think it's it's really really broken. But when you have that huge number of MQLs, you must spend all of your budget doing the wrong things because the number is so extraordinary, extraordinarily large because you're expecting how terrible the conversion rates will be downstream. Like I talk to people that that run LinkedIn ads and, and plan on only 3% of their leads becoming an SAL. That's crazy. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I want to talk about the what are the things that they should be measuring on right now? Because I think a lot of companies are, if they're not looking at MQLs, which I've never seen, and I'm lucky to be in a position like this, I've never seen that ever presented to like the a CEO, like, oh, I got 3,000 MQLs. I've never seen that ever. Mm-hmm. The only, number, only thing the CEO and the CMO care about is how much pipeline did we generate that is qualified for sales and how much, what is the win and was it efficient enough? Mm-hmm. Was it totally. Efficient? But why are some of these CEOs and CMOs like expecting this out of their marketers? So first off, like if you go back to a time where marketing automation existed, this was honestly probably one of the best ways to do it. Like we're talking in a 2005 timeframe when this model came along and Twitter didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like not even the platforms before after that, but like not even Twitter was there. And so what did you do? The main channel to use was either Google or email. And so what did you do? You collected as many, you ran Google to an ebook, collected as many emails as possible, put them in email nurtures and cold called them. (laughs) Like that's what you did. And so for for whatever reason, 15 years later, we're still running the same play, but we're just using LinkedIn ads to get the, the email addresses instead of Google or whatever people are doing. And so why people continue to to stay on MQLs is because they have run the same model over and over and haven't looked at the uh, the things that have changed. And I think you asked another question in there that I, I might have missed. So would be happy to answer if you could repeat it. I think I forgot it as well, but we can keep, <laughs> keep, we can keep going on. One question I had, and I, I think this is a, a good conversation is how should a company build out this like ideal fit customer? Because one thing I see is like, they let a lot of people in and they do sell, right? But what happens is after they sell, they churn, like because they're not someone that is either ready to buy or someone that fits like what their product can actually serve. So like, what are the strategies you tell companies to find this ideal fit customer? So to be to be honest, like at this point now, we only work with companies that already have figured that out. Like just based on your stage and the traction in the market, the revenue, like we want companies that have already figured that out. The main reason being is we are not built and we don't do trying to find tw- a million leads so people can figure out what their customers are. We are gasoline that brings high efficiency leads that they already know will process and sell through their sales process well. And so that's the core difference in the way that we the way that we do it. And so typically like 20 million ARR plus is all we're going going after now because we need to see that repeatable demand flow and ability to to sell to those people that are coming in. One of the points you mentioned, I, I remembered it, what people need to think about is the idea of splitting the funnel 
And so if you split the funnel between high intent, which is only a sales conversion, I want pricing, I want a demo, I want to talk to your sales rep, I'm going to call your number, high intent versus low intent or no intent, content download, webinar attendee, they, you sent them six emails and you're going to give them a MQL score of 80, low intent. If you split the funnel, you'll realize that all of the pipeline and revenue is coming from the high intent. And maybe you get some pipeline on the low intent, but very little of that is actually going to revenue. And you can probably just celebrate that revenue because you have attribution on 30,000 leads and inevitably a couple of them will close. And so if you split it and you actually look at the high intent and you build your demand funnel off of just that, and then you use all of your marketing to influence that conversion instead of collect low intent leads, you would get a much, much better result. You would actually need way less leads too. You would win them at a much higher rate. Your customer acquisition costs would be much lower. You would need way less SDRs because you're following, you know, even, even so, like when we take companies down this path, if you're getting, if you go from 3000 MQLs that are complete garbage every month to a hundred solid demo requests that become customers at seven to 10%, then you can send those directly to account executives. That's buyer centric. One point I want to make is that I think that marketers have done and to like the sales orgs, and I see this in sales orgs right now, is like a lot of marketers have handed off all these bad leads to these these sales reps. And now like when you ask them, like, can we book demos on your calendar? They're so protective of that calendar because they think like, oh, you're just gonna send me a crappy lead. Totally. And I and I think like how do you when you go into a company like flip that mindset of like a sales team to say like, Hey, like I'm going to book this demo on your calendar. That is going to be a high intent lead versus their mindset that they already think like, Oh, marketing is going to give me this like crappy lead. And I bet you see it all the time. Like they do. I even seen like well oiled machine companies. They still sales reps are so protective of their totally. calendar because of the, this, this mindset marketing has given them. Yeah. So I've, I've done this before and this was the core reason why I have so much respect for doing it this way is that when I built this demand function in 2016, yes, there were four SDRs, but if I was having good high intent leads, I wanted them to go to account executives and we had 40 field sales reps across the country. And I didn't want to have an SDR fumble it and book a meeting and not be able to build rapport and not be able to, to, you know, talk about that thing that's happening in Atlanta where the sales rep is also part of their community and get that little touch point in order to get ready for the meeting. And so when I started to generate leads, I called them myself. And I quickly figured out which ones were good and which ones not. I quickly figured out if I was the account executive, would I want to talk to this lead or not? Would I want to drive six hours across the state to go to a meeting with this lead or not? And then I just started, I, I figured out direct response, Facebook, no direct response, LinkedIn, no ebook download, definitely not, you know, competitor paid search, usually not. What did I want? Organic direct traffic, branded search, demo request. And so I started to focus all of the marketing there. How you change the mindset on this is by, I, I mean, ideally you, you have the sales counter, the sales leader on board with this and you present them with data and you allow them to help this. The vice president of sales was the biggest impact to me being successful during that process because he knew that the leads that I was sending were in a close at somewhere between three and 10 times better than the ones that they were generating themselves. And the data is right there in Salesforce. And so that really was the core 
bringing help from the VP of sales, having some success stories inside of the AEs that were following up quickly. Hey, I followed up with an hour. We had a meeting in the books in three days and I closed that deal in 16 and we normally have an 180 day sales cycle. Like that's a success story you want to put on chatter and let the other people talk about. So those were some big things. And then lastly, like you as a marketer need to take a hard look and, and decide whether or not they're actually good. If they're actually good, they should be converting to opportunities at 50 plus percent. And at that point, if it's a coin flip or better than a coin flip odds, that AE is going to create an opportunity out out of that, then you should do it. Another thing to think about is that you should probably only look at this type of process if you have a higher ACV product. You probably probably need to go full cycle. If you have a 4K ACV product, you should probably go product-led actually. But this whole thing works better in in low-volume, higher-priced products. One thing I want to talk about it because I I like to talk about this low intent and high intent, but it's funny because I see a lot of the time also that these lower intent activities that you're doing that these Facebook and podcasts are creating all these this, these brand searches and creating totally. direct visits. But then people are thinking like, oh, my brand searches are doing so well, and my direct visit, like my website is doing well, like they can. Just spend more on SEO, yeah. Because so many uh, last touch attribution, so many people are coming through Google to buy our stuff, and it's like that's how people buy. People pass through Google to convert to buy stuff, and so people yeah. give credit. People give way too much credit to both organic and paid search. Way too much. Yeah, because if you're thinking, of, I think a lot of times it comes down to empathy and putting yourself in the buyer's shoes. Like, as a buyer, have you ever gone to Facebook looking for a SaaS software? Have you ever gone to LinkedIn looking for a SaaS software? The intent of going on those channels are not what you think they are. No. And the problem is that, like, yes, you're going to see a high lift in these brand channels because that's what they're searching for when they want to buy your product. So like Mm -hmm. just get to the point where I think that's the crazy thing where I even try to show like, look, when we didn't have these, like look at the, like all our brand search where they were. And now when we're doing these awareness based channels, Mm -hmm. look how much brand has gone up, like show that left to like, even our marketing team, which like, cause I think there's also this thing in marketing teams where they battle for like, my channel's the best. Totally. Specialization of roles is is really bad. You use you use channels in the wrong way to create metrics to justify what you're doing. That's why every single company will run LinkedIn ads only for lead gen because the person that does LinkedIn needs to say they got 500 leads at $50 each. And the same person will do that in Facebook. And then the person in Google, instead of running to high intent keywords to demos, want to have as many leads for as cheap as possible. And are going to take broad match keywords and run them to ebook downloads so they can they can report $5 CPA. And so by specializing in channel, oftentimes you create the wrong behaviors, especially if there's not a leader that's that's managing the multi-channel mix as it's supposed to be designed. Google is, a, is an intent channel, Facebook and LinkedIn are not. And so it's about understanding whether or not it's an awareness or intent channel, doing things in an awareness channel that are based on awareness and education and consideration and measuring it appropriately on those types of metrics. It's, I mean, everyone listening to this afterwards will definitely be able to think of one SaaS tool that they have seen ads for inside of Facebook or Instagram. And they'll be able to look at two paths because I know a lot of people have done that. The first path, they convert on the ad because all those ads are asking for a demo because that's how they measured. And then they can think about whether or not they bought that product afterwards. And the answer is no. 
And then they can think about the ads where they got the ads and then they looked at the product and then they didn't do anything. And then three months later, they were like, shit, that actually is a real problem for me. And they went to Google and they searched the brand name and they asked for a demo and they bought it. And so why wouldn't you just market the same way that you go through buying cycles? Because this is not a, you know, marketer versus someone else is doing different behavior. Like this is human behavior, people, just like how people buy on e-commerce. And so I just think that I hear the objection, oh, like our buyers don't use Facebook. This is an interesting topic that I wanted to dive into because I don't think I've ever asked anybody this question, but like how should marketing teams metric individuals different than like the marketing team? Because this is what you just said, like an SEO or like a Facebook ad person is going to be like, Hey, I want my channel to show that it generated this many leads. So I can I watch that. I watch so, that happen a lot. Yeah. And I think this is a lot of the problem. It's like, and I, I, I still see it in some companies that they, they'll be like, Hey, could you switch the channel, the channel on Salesforce to show that my channel like converted this because like I need to, this happens all the time. And I'm totally. just wondering like, like how does should a marketing leader change the mindset of like these individuals to say like, Hey, you are showing success, but it isn't like coming in through your channel. It's coming in through these branded channels. It's coming in, especially like a Facebook person mm-hmm. or an SEO, not an SEO, but a, a Facebook person or like a content person who's like driving brand value mm-hmm. on top of funnel. It's about one acknowledging that channel attribution to revenue is dumb. It's dumb and it creates the wrong behaviors. I don't know what else to say. Like it's going to favor, like I said at the beginning, Google only because that's how people buy. And so the first, if you can acknowledge that attribution is not as important as the MarTech vendors and all the people and the analyst firms have made you believe that it is and brainwashed you, then you can start to think about what makes the most sense. And then you start and you measure your SEO based on the ranking and the traffic and the relevant traffic and the, and the page depth created from people that are searching for that long tail. Right. And, and like, and then it becomes very simple. Like, okay, you wrote 10 top of funnel, long tail SEO blogs, and it generates, you know, they're ranking in the top three, which is huge for us. We generated this much traffic when we have that much traffic and we know because the keywords are actually focused on our buyers, not about just driving unqualified traffic that then we can in future retarget them if we wanted to across all these different channels. And then maybe it'll give, and then maybe Facebook will touch them. And then it might happen on LinkedIn and then maybe they'll come back through Google and Google will take the credit. And so the same thing goes for LinkedIn or Facebook on Facebook and LinkedIn. We've been doing something for about six months now where we built custom conversions, tracking to demo on cross device attribution and can now see when you run a brand ad and somebody doesn't even click on it. And within seven days goes back to the website on a desktop computer and asks for a demo. And you would be amazed how many more people do that action then click on the ad, carefully scroll through the page and ask for a demo on their mobile device. And you would, unless we set up this custom conversion tracking, you would never see that in Salesforce. Never see that in Marketo. You would give a ton of credit to SEO. You would stop running Facebook ads. You would invest more in SEO and your leads would go down. Your high intent leads would go down. And so you can measure certain channels based on that type of activity, but we try not to convert people on mobile devices because I know the conversion rates downstream are way worse than on a desktop computer because the level of intent is different. 
I always hear about like how you talk about how Facebook is this awareness and you do a heavy content play on there. Heavy. But I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what instances do you actually run like a direct response Facebook ad to these people? Is it a retargeting play or like never. do you never ever do it? The only time we'll run direct response is in two cases. One, the customer has a webinar and they want us to run registrations to them and we have a budget allocator or if they force us to do it for an ebook download, then we'll do it. The second one is you can run a lot of direct response to product-led user acquisition flows and that's where it's appropriate. If you're selling mid-market enterprise SaaS, it's just not the way that people buy. And so all you're going to do is create a thousand leads, a few opportunities and zero to one customers. And it's just like not not that interesting to me, not that interesting to me on a customer acquisition cost perspective or a performance marketing perspective. But more importantly, the 999 leads that your SDRs and AEs are talking to that don't buy like that is the real the real problem is in that hidden cost. Yeah. One thing I, I love something that you talk about is this dark social aspect of things, because I think like one of the hardest thing and this goes into the measurement topic, but <laughs> I, I think a lot of it is like people don't understand. And I shared this with you because I wanted to show you that it works. Like someone shared your post inside of my company's Slack channel and Mm -hmm. you have no way in the world to ever attribute it. But now you're in a Slack channel of 50 people who are like interested in your topic, but you can't Mm -hmm. measure that at all. And Mm -hmm. this is the thing about content plays that people underestimate is like, if you make content that people that creates value, people will share it. Like uh-huh. it's not as simple. And I think it's so crazy that like this measurement topic gets so pushed on people's throat because you probably got so much more value of that post being shared. Cause now like when someone's thinking about, I forgot what the topic was, but some, someone's thinking about like, okay, let's say the, the topic was like pricing, right? Like uh-huh. put pricing on your site. They're going to come to refine labs because they want to figure out like how to do this properly because mm-hmm. we can't figure it out internally. So yeah, I just, I was just going down a rant because I think like content marketing, like this is one thing that I even see is like, and it goes down to your biggest topic that you talk about is word of mouth marketing, right? It's like word of mouth is like what you should create your marketing. Mm-hmm. And I love someone said this to me the other day. Oh, Matt, Matthew Kobach said this to me the other day is like, if you make an ad that feels like an ad, nobody's going to share the ad. And if you make an ad that doesn't feel like an ad, people will share it. Mm-hmm. And that's the one of the underrated things of marketing is like the shareability of like some a piece of content. Totally. Nobody's sharing your LinkedIn ad for an ebook download. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. And the, the, the core difference, the core distinction here is brand versus performance. That's the only that's the only difference. And B2B companies, especially in the tech SaaS world, do not think at all about brand and want everything right now because they think about things like sales. They think about things in this month. And to me, marketing is way more important when the person that you're marketing to knows that they don't need your thing right now. But when they do, they're going to choose you. That's what marketing is about. And yes, some of those people will be choosing tomorrow and others will be choosing in four years. The goal is to get as many people aware and in consideration of the product and moving into a high intent conversion as quickly as possible. 
And so when you move into word of mouth, I totally agree. Like there's nobody that can debate that me giving Daniel a recommendation on what, you know, attribution tools to use. Sorry, I hate attribution tools, but whatever, what attribution tool to use is way more powerful than seeing an ad is way more powerful than getting a cold call is way more powerful than seeing this little banner hanging above your trade show booth is a word of mouth interaction. And it doesn't have to be, Hey, Daniel, you should buy that product. It could be, Hey, Daniel, I saw this thing, thought it would be really helpful. And it's about how attribution doesn't matter. And Daniel reads it and he's like, Whoa, this is so important. And he buys the tool. And so people really underestimate how important other people telling people about not only your product, but also about your content. Your content is a, is the pre-product. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. And so how do you create content that people actually want to consume and actually share because it's valuable and actually distribute it in a way that people see it and over time create a lot of awareness about you and what you do and what your message is and how it's differentiated, which then leads more people to thinking about buying from you. It's just crazy because I think that well, just on that topic, it's just you, it's not a bad thing to create an ad that doesn't feel like an ad. Like it's not a bad thing to share something that people actually get value on top of funnel from, because even thinking of yourself, I think this is the biggest problem that I see a lot of people. One is what you say, they don't, just don't talk to customers at mm-hmm. all, which causes this, but just put yourself in your shoes as like a marketer. Like when do you buy a SaaS product? when you probably need a SaaS product or like when you're mm-hmm. trying to solve a problem and seeing an ad is probably going to either spark like, okay, I, this company, so I talked to actually to our, the head of demand generation at my company. And I was like, monday.com, right? I see ads for them all the time. But like when I want a project managing tool, even if I don't buy monday.com, they still in my mind for a project management tool that I want to buy just because I see them all the time. Totally. And that's like the difference is that like as a mark, like the, for me, empathetically, like you got to just think of yourself as a buyer. I think like for me as a buyer, I'm only going to buy something when I need it for my marketing team to be more successful or I need it. It's a missing gap. And it's not, I'm not going on Facebook to look at that today because I know that I don't need anything. But if you, if you show me content over a time period, I'm going to say like, mm-hmm. I did this with another company. I think it was like Clearbit was on top of my mind and we needed something to for like data enrichment. And mm-hmm. it came in my mind, but I saw the ads like 3000 times that <laughs> at, the t- at the point when I went to go look for a data enrichment, they were like first in my mind because I didn't know any other companies to mm-hmm. look for because they were in the top of my mind. Yeah, that's like I had the exact same example. Monday.com sells a tool in a commodity software space project management tools are a commodity and right now we use asana asana does not do marketing well Um, they have a good brand they have a lot of market penetration but in terms of digital execution it's poor and then at one point when asana can't do one thing that i want it to do literally the first thing that i do is go to google and search for monday.com and that's called winning on brand And so I I think it's really interesting because like the asanas of the world, people know them and they think that what they're doing is the way to do it. But it's actually following the challengers that are growing 
Monday.com is a challenger to some of those brands, not anymore, but <laughs> 10 years ago they were. And following what they're doing is smart. Doing what Salesforce is doing right now is dumb. Salesforce is a huge organization that already has massive penetration and scale and money. So doing what the company that's challenging Salesforce that's growing at 50 or 75%, is it a 10 million in revenue is the smart thing to do. And so I think as companies get larger, they get more conservative and that's fine. What I'm more, cons- what I'm more concerned about is the companies that are 5 million ARR and are acting like those se- seven to seven plus billion dollar organization. I think you make a great point there. I think like it all comes down to just like this assumption that you think you're like the the player in everybody's head. Maybe G2 tells you that you're the player in everybody's <laughs> head. Or, or, or you pay G2 to tell you that. Yeah. Or Google tells you that you're the authority figure. But like you said, like, and this is comes down to your point you made at the beginning in the talk. Is if you're winning before someone gets to Google, if someone searches for best software you've won before you've mm-hmm. even searched for best software for asana like if asana is not doing all that stuff top of funnel like monday.com is mm-hmm. i'm not even gonna go look for best software because now my first thought process is like monday.com like i'm not even gonna go search for best software anymore because i know one that is on top of my mind and it makes yeah. it goes back to that great point you made about winning before and the, yeah the, i mean the truth is right now that you are only in Google searching for stuff if you feel like if you don't have a top of mind brand in that category. That's the only reason you're there. I did it recently. I wanted to work with somebody. They disqualified us. And so then I had to and then I didn't know anyone else. So I had to search through and do it every other time. And people can think about this. The only reason you are sorting through Google is if somebody hasn't won before Google. And that's Mm -hmm. just the difference in how people have changed their buying behaviors. People discover products in a different way. And that is a super important insight for everyone because they spend all their time on search and there's other people that are winning before they even get there. I haven't spent any time on SEO for the past five or six years. Did had a lot of success with SEO in 2011, 12, 13. And when social started to come about, I recognized how things were changing. And seven years later, a lot of people haven't. And so what's happened over the past you know, two decades since search was was in its prime is that it's become way more competitive, way more expensive, and buyers are going elsewhere. And so all of the trends are happening against what most marketers are doing right now instead of them finding a place where they can lean in. And this is something that I think marketers don't think about. And it's came off a topic that you said one day about B2B influencers. How like, if you make a good enough product, I will share it. And I think a lot of companies like focus on like like having all this good marketing, but like if your product doesn't solve my problems, like it's not going to be in the running to help. Like mm-hmm. I think in a lot of things is like taking what you just said is like these this customer feedback loop and saying like, hey, this is what we're hearing top of funnel. Like, could we put this in our product? Because a lot of this stuff is missing and that will help you win before Google because I think like what happens a lot. And I, I, I just thought about this now because I know it's happened at most, a lot of companies that I've been at, it's like there's one or two features that is separating people from not buying our product. Mm -hmm. And it's usually like a feature that like 
on our product team's roadmap is not even on there, but it's like what everybody wants. Mm -hmm. And I think like this should be part of a marketing strategy, like get these products in to help win top of funnel. Um, And I don't think a lot of marketers think about the product side of it. Yeah. I mean, luckily, given my background, I am a full marketer, like have worked in product, have set pricing strategy and raised ASPs over and over for companies have worked through go-to-market distribution, have have shifted distribution channels into direct channels, have worked it with distributors in EMEA because we didn't want to set up a direct channel there, have worked through distribution, which is called place, and then have gotten incredibly good at promotion, which is the fourth P, but you actually need to respect and understand all of them. They all play together. And right now in SaaS companies, those are split between four different people when it really is the mix of those four that are the most important. If you sell a cheap product, then maybe it doesn't have as many features, right? Like the product and the price actually go together. How it's distributed goes together. Just like this is a common like CPG analogy, but it plays in B2B as well. Just a lot of marketers in B2B don't respect it. I know we're getting in time, but I want to, I just want to make this point to a lot of people is that like, I would get close with the and marketers should not only get close with the sales team, get close with the product team totally. because customers can build your product product mobile roadmap for you. Uh-huh. They're screaming at their lungs on social and other channels saying like, I want these two features. Uh-huh. If you, if you're not listening to that, like that's the same thing as not listening to what your customers actually want in your ads and stuff like that. So I uh-huh. think like it should, what you just said, it's, it, Everybody should be on the same page in this, at least a SaaS company. Yeah. The key, the key for me is your product can't suck, right? But there's a huge difference between your product not being good and your product being okay, right? The best, you don't need the best product to win. You need a product that's good enough, ideally as good as possible and a lot of people to know about it. And so the two things, and almost everyone listening to this podcast will disagree with me on this thing, the two most important things in a B2B marketing organization are product and marketing. Mm-hmm. And I bet you some, and I bet you know what you're going to say is like a lot of people will say it's sales is one of the biggest functions. Totally. Yeah. But one last question before I end this podcast, mm-hmm. I want to know like if you could put something on a billboard that it was about marketing that everybody could see, like what would you put to just scream to the world? All marketers should know this. So there's so, there's so many things, and I they're like if it's on a billboard, you kind of want it to be broad so it works for a lot of people. So what I would say if it was a billboard where only B two B SaaS exec- executives drove by, I think it would probably say the demand waterfall is dried up to try and get them out of that that mindset that that has been going on. Um, if it was a more broad one, I would say marketers should go talk to customers. <laughs> I love those. Those are two <laughs> great ones. Chris has been great. I want to give you the chance to for people to find out where they could find you and give you a little chance to give a little self promotion here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not really uh, I'm not really self promotional, but if you liked what you heard here, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Content posted there every day, and then a ton of marketers are giving us good feedback on the podcast, which is called State of Demand Gen, available on Apple and Spotify. 
which is, has about, we've amassed about 5k listeners and continue to grow and getting a ton of feedback from people about, Hey, I just got this new job. Hey, I tried that and it worked. Hey, I just got promoted to head of demand. Thank you for this podcast. And so if any of that sounds interesting to you, would encourage you to check it out. Cool. Yeah. And I am one of those 5,000. So (laughs) I agree. You should go listen to that podcast. Chris, thank you so much for hopping on this and providing value like you always do. Right on, Daniel. Thanks for having me, man. This is fun. Thanks.